0: That's what I love probably about time travel is the idea, one, that we all have all these regrets, but then secondarily that we all wish at like the core of ourselves that there was some way to go back and undo things. It's such a big part of the human condition.
1: to the Brightwall Dark Room Podcast, where we belly up with critics, artists, and our magazine's contributors to speak from the heart about film. I'm Veronica Fitzpatrick.
0: And I'm Chad Perman. Chad Perman, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good, Veronica Fitzpatrick. How are you?
1: <laughs> I've been better.
0: <laughs> yes. Do we want to talk about that, or do we want to breeze on by?
1: I think we'll leave specifics redacted. Okay, sounds good. But I will say this has been a very challenging Virgo season. Yeah challenging mercury retro personal life low-key shambles Mm. but been watching a lot of movies that's a good thing you know (laughs) i would say that free therapy but my monthly streaming bill would say otherwise
0: cinema therapy can be expensive yeah
1: it absolutely can yeah i mean i got into the matinee of pearl so at least there's that oh yeah
0: you saw pearl i forgot did you like it
1: I liked it so much. Me and Marty just love Pearl. I was going to say, I read
0: Scorsese's like gushing praise of it and saying that he's like scared to go to sleep at night. I was like, oh, Marty.
1: I know. It's funny because I saw some like snarky tweets that were just like. On Twitter? I know. Can you imagine? Bad attitudes. There
0: was some snark.
1: Just being like, why would you see that when there's all this other stuff? (laughs) What?
0: You could say that for any movie ever released.
1: Yeah, I know. Embarrassment of riches type of thing. I'm. A, it's also treating Ty West like he's a Marvel creator or something. It's like so ludicrous. But,
0: yeah. but you liked it?
1: I liked it so much. Like X, it's really invested in this kind of like cinema history, oh, cool, nice. cinema literacy kind of thing. And it's, it's riffing on like Technicolor and really reminded me of the BFI book that Salman Rushdie wrote about The Wizard of Oz.
0: Oh, wow. What? Like- Great, great reference. I I read that many many years ago, but it's fantastic.
1: Yeah, did you? Yeah, it's so great and like um cutting. Yeah, and I feel like this too has this kind of like dark reading of fantasies.
0: Mm. Was it actually scary, though? I know you love horror movies. I sure do. But I don't know if you actually get scared of them or if you intellectually appreciate them.
1: It's both. I, I honestly don't think it's that scary, though. There is one kind of continuous shot that ushers in this kind of climax of the film gore-wise, I guess, that is pretty scary but i think lots of shots that make good use of like foreground background yeah like action staged in multiple planes at once and you kind of helplessly watching that happen kind of it follows style i've always liked that (laughs) that's why
0: i don't watch that's why i don't watch horror movies yeah (laughs) i i will do anything to not be in that feeling
1: yeah you'll have a hard time sleeping
0: yeah me and marty
1: yeah how have you been
0: generally i've been okay been a, a generally good month Kids back to school, and uh, that's about the only thing different probably from any other month of this year. Can't think of anything that would be worth mentioning (laughs) pod-wise.
1: Well, I can.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what's that?
1: I wanted to know how you feel about Harry Styles stealing your line about (laughs) film criticism.
0: I mean, I can't speak about, you know, there's pending litigation, so... (laughs) I'm I'm not allowed to speak further on Mr. Styles' case. Not
1: another NDA. <laughs> yeah. Well, for those who missed it, let me just summarize. <laughs> <laughs> Amid the "Don't worry, darling" gate, it's that like famous interview where he's like, "Quote, you know, my favorite thing about the movie is like, it feels like a movie. Brilliant. It feels like a real like, you know, go to the theater film movie." <laughs> That's a hyphenate.
0: To be fair, I've never said a film movie, so I have avoided that.
1: That's true. You should have patented it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like you should not be allowed to comment on whether something is a movie unless you've really done your kind of research and really understand what it is we're talking about here.
1: 100%.
0: I felt like his casual use of it was disrespectful to our pod. I love
1: that. I love that. Yeah. Wag your finger.
0: And thus, the movie tanked.
1: Yeah, I, I'm excited to watch it someday on an airplane.
0: And I'm excited to hear you tell me what it was like to watch on an airplane and probably not watch myself.
1: I'll probably just be like, I cried because that's my review <laughs> of everything I watched on an airplane. Okay.
0: Speaking of not that at all. <laughs> yeah. What should, we, uh, what should we talk about today? We got, we got some
1: options. We should talk about time travel. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, that's the issue theme. Yeah. How did you guys come up with that one? Like, how did that come up in the list of possible themes? That was
0: another last minute, like, idea. Gulp. <laughs> <Gold. laughs> yeah. I just, uh, I, I think I think we might have thought about doing climate change for another month yet again and then swerved out of oh it. Oh, my God. I don't know. I don't know if that's ever going to happen. But time travel to me was, just I'm just a huge time travel person. Um, I just like pretty much any movie that has time travel as a plot element or part. Mm -hmm. Um, I really like Mm -hmm. it. The the more obsessed they are with explaining... How the time travel works, the less interested I am in the movie. Mm-hmm. So that's why I like the one we're talking about a lot today. Mm-hmm. So I don't care about all the technicalities and does this really work? And what about the grandfather paradox? And all this other? I don't care about any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I just like people traveling through time.
1: Me too. A hundred percent. I'm not really interested in anything that requires a diagram. No. Yeah. God, no. Anything that would prompt a kind of explanatory YouTube video, a whiteboard, all the things that you would use to catch a serial killer. That's stuff I don't. You just
0: described like Christopher Nolan's whole
1: house. I know and there is something kind of I think there's a way to have a kind of bimbo appreciation of Nolan's films too where you're just like fun like I'm not gonna pay attention to how this really works. Tenet
0: was not fun.
1: Oh no way! Tenet was so fun. It was
0: not a fun movie no. Uh no. We'll have to have Fran on to talk about that I don't she's allowed to comment on it more than me.
1: Tenet is totally fun. What about that raucous soundtrack? No. Come
0: on. I liked Inception. You probably didn't didn't like that.
1: I liked it fine. I know you hated
0: Interstellar because you don't like space.
1: You know, I don't like space, but Interstellar is also about, like, what would happen if you could fall in love with your own daughter? And that's also (laughs) mostly why I don't like Interstellar, even though I like a casual incest plot.
0: Is that what that was? How did you... That is an interesting take on that movie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There is a... I don't know. Just, like, a sort of weird Family trauma wish Mm. involved in a lot of those puzzle films that I think is totally relevant to our film today.
0: Yeah, we have not mentioned that film yet, so should we? Lay it on me. What are are we talking about today? What movie? It's Looper.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. It's Ryan Johnson's Looper. Mm. Yeah, that's the film for today. All right, let's loop it up. Let's loop it up. A little synopsis before we get in. Sounds good. Okay. Looper reunites writer-director Ryan Johnson with Bricks' Joseph Gordon-Levitt, a.k.a. Joe, a junkie assassin employed by a Kansas City crime syndicate in the year 2044. According to crime boss Abe, played by Jeff Daniels, time travel is illegal in the future from which he comes, so assassins known as loopers reach a mandatory retirement when their last assignment is to kill their older selves, therefore closing the loop and starting the clock of 30 years' severance. Things get hairy when Joe's colleague Seth, played by Paul Dano, fails to execute his loop and learns of a mercenary future boss known as the Rainmaker. Joe then meets his own loop, played by Bruce Willis, whose natural profile inspires Levitt's uncanny facial prosthetic slash makeup job, and new Joe must face off against old Joe in a very literal take on the tradition of age-knowing better than youth, and youth rejecting the pat certainty of age, except they're actually the same person. Emily Blunt is also in this movie there it is (laughs) that line is so great Uh, it's not honestly even meant to be cheeky but i i was sort of like is this gonna go like 800 words i mean it's kind of hard to summarize the premise of the film she
0: is also in this movie i would agree
1: yeah that is emily blunt she's in it too yes yeah she is in this movie she's in it too
0: i think you picked this film unless you lied i think you picked it right
1: I think I suggested it, and then Eli strongly seconded. Yeah.
0: yeah. Why did that come to mind? That's what I was, what I'm curious about.
1: Why did that come to mind?
0: There's lots and lots of time travel movies. Yeah. Got a wide berth of selection.
1: So a couple different things. I have been thinking about Ryan Johnson because the new Knives Out Glass Onion movie has been sort of populating my timeline. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to see it. I'm really stoked that Ryan Johnson's like super famous now because Brick is one of my favorite movies. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I love that too. I think it's great. I saw it in the theater. I just think it's a totally singular love letter to film noir. Definitely. And this too, I think, betrays his. Appetite for genre conventions, for conforming to them, and also defying them in equal measure.
0: I know. I think you could make a really good case, as you said that. I was thinking like that. Pretty much every one of his movies is a love letter to something. Yeah. Even the Last Jedi, which I will put—that as my hot take. It's a love letter to Star Wars movies.
1: <laughs> that seems totally plausible to me. <laughs> but yeah,
0: I mean, like, because I was just looking at his filmography, and I was like, there is not a movie in here that I have not watched. Pretty fascinated Lee. Mm-hmm. That's not a word. I don't know how many people even remember it, let alone liked it. But I really like Brothers Bloom. I thought, mm-hmm. like, well, I haven't seen a movie like this before. Mm-hmm. Definitely with Brick um, and Looper, it feels like he was in a bit more experimental phases. He was doing those things, um, and then of course the Last Jedi. Obviously, everyone knows how that went for him, but that was not fair. It is my favorite Star Wars movie, but I say that as not a huge Star Wars fan. And then yeah, and then Knives Out just freaking nailed the whole Agatha Christie, like that whole mm. like it was just wonderful. And so I hope he can pull it off with a sequel. If anybody can, I would have faith in him to be able to do it. I just think he respects a lot of like. You said the conventions of the genres that he writes these love letters to, but that also, mm-hmm. like you said, he also usually I don't know if it's in Knives Out, he usually puts a little turn of the screw in there somewhere too mm-hmm. or messes with the convention a little bit. So I, I just think he is always coming from the right place and I, I really like him a lot. So
1: I think it's totally true with Knives Out too, though, because I mean, if you think about those masterpiece whodunits as often being about the corruption of a certain like upper class. For that movie to then provide this happy ending to this, like, immigrant domestic worker, I think mm-hmm. it, it's such a... <laughs> yeah, that was a cool twist, yeah. You know, like, even if it's not a twist exactly, it's a nice extension of a convention that might go unrecognized if it weren't for him underlining it in this contemporary take.
0: Yeah, and then also just, I mean, the, the, the couple episodes of Breaking Bad that he directed were two of, like, the best episodes in that whole series. So, um... so yeah, I mean, and that was, you know, fairly conventional direction but just really he's just really good at whatever he does yeah uh and and i like that a lot and then of course obviously married to uh to korena longworth as well which is just a wonderful thing doesn't have any relevancy to this discussion but it's a nice thing that i'm glad it happened
1: Podcast royalty. I think I read somewhere that, is it that they met the reverse of Otessa Moschveg? Like she was meant to do a Q&A with him on, at a theater or something and that's how they met and then they started dating. Oh really? Yeah, so. Where do you want to get started talking about this film? I mean, I feel like what I gave in the plot synopsis is just up to like a certain point and then there's all these other things. We've got Noah Segan playing Kid Blue who is like a gat man who is one sort of henchman status stage up from the loopers they have better guns like actual handguns
0: my propensity for taking in detail of plot pretty quickly so i I couldn't tell you what a gatman was if you asked me right now chad what's the gatman i was like i don't know they were in it but i don't really know what they did
1: they shot (laughs) okay they shot stuff yeah they're just like more guys more henchmen guys in like trench coats i
0: knew they were bad gatman not good but
1: well i mean it's the future insofar as it's like clearly a kind of urban, corrupt, city center type of situation for the beginning of the film. No. And then once young Joe and old Joe have this confrontation, then we sort of shift to the country. There's a lot to explain in that, though. I mean, I don't want to speed it up too much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing that strikes me about this is when we finally do meet Bruce Willis, basically how it happens is we get this kind of showy montage in like the early middle of the movie, uh, maybe a third of the way in. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of allusions in this film to the bad path or to like a way that one's life could go. And the idea that that is visible from a particular point in space, which I think is really interesting and obviously not true, but evocative. (laughs) And cinematically, we get that with the montage where we see Mm -hmm. what would happen if young Joe, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, takes the money, moves to China, continues down the path of, like, crime and... Addiction, yeah. Drugs. Yeah. yeah, he's addicted to drugs, which are in eyedrops. It's the future. So he's doing, like, poppers in his eyes and <laughs> killing people. And then there's this, like, unforgettable shot... Where suddenly, I think they're trying to do this kind of like Hong Kong action film type of aesthetic in in this part of the montage. We see him with this really long black haircut. And then we see (laughs) Bruce Willis with the long black haircut. And we're meant to imagine that's the sort of progression before we get regular bald Willis as old Joe. I really Um, felt like there
0: needed to be a medium (laughs) Joe
1: a hundred percent yeah a hundred percent yeah we needed josh hartnett in there for like <laughs> two shots just to blend
0: no, but nobody could find him so
1: yeah <laughs> i know or like Heath ledger r.i.p some, some other like gorgeous squinty actor yeah to serve as the transitional joe
0: with the prosthetic nose yeah Yeah, and then we
1: see him, like, changing his ways because he meets this woman um, who unfortunately is credited in the film as Joe's wife. Oh, no. Yeah, and then Mm. it comes time to send him back to get his loop closed. He doesn't want to do it. This woman, like, cleaned him up, got him sober. They have this, like... Ridiculously idyllic life. And throughout this kind of sequence, which takes a considerable amount of time, but is also condensed in the way that montage is, I was just thinking about how montage is maybe like one of the most familiar forms of time travel that we have, right? For condensing a given amount of time into a kind of more digestible unit of narrative. I like that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like flashbacks and stuff too, but there's something about that momentum of the montage that I've always found really appealing. Yeah. Yeah, and you have, at some point in your life, taught this film? Yeah, I used to teach a course called Mock Futures about science fiction cinema. Mock
0: Futures? Oh, I like that.
1: Yeah, it's from a line from a Frederick Jameson article okay. uh, about sci-fi. Nice. Yeah, I like to do La Jetée first. Oh, yeah. And then this film. And then talk about the line versus the loop. It's hmm. like two shapes of time travel. Ooh, good class. Yeah. Wow.
0: Just plug really quick. We have a, an essay on Lajtai, and it was the uh, the kickoff essay for the for the time travel issue this month. So
1: as it should be, it's sort of like the yeah. paradigmatic time travel movie.
0: The no brainer. Yeah.
1: But funny that Bruce Willis also stars in Twelve Monkeys, based on Jete.
0: In Twelve Monkeys, yeah, there's the connection. Yeah.
1: There it is. There it is. Pod over.
0: <laughs> Eli, hit stop. <laughs> right, so I saw this when it first came out, mm-hmm. and I remember being like intrigued and liking it in general. Mm -hmm. I really just loved it, watching it again recently, like a few days ago. I I was like, oh, this is way better than I remembered it being. I I remember being impressed by it, more admiring it than like really being into it, but this time Mm -hmm. I felt really into it, so
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I'm not sure if it was just a difference in context for how I was watching it or for what reasons but um yeah it was really really good I was really hooked into it um even just on a narrative level yeah I'd totally kind of forgotten really almost everything that had happened in the Mm. 10 years since I saw it I just kept waiting for it to kind of make a a misstep in in some way that time travel movies can do there's lots of pitfalls there Mm. and I don't think it did I mean I felt like oh it pulled it off and I think you know reading a lot about it obviously um he mentions it a lot like the time travel was not the point it was the vehicle mm-hmm. and I think that's probably why I liked it so much is because as much as I like the time travel stuff I mostly like the time travel stuff because of the existential things and the paradoxes and everything it brings up mm-hmm. um, I don't like we said at the top I don't really care about the mechanics of it If there's a big huge gaping like hole in how this would work mm-hmm. so what it's time travel it exists in this movie so let's just get you know what's the suspension of disbelief I'll go with that mm-hmm. every time so I really like that he didn't spend you know 10 minutes trying to explain all this like here's how this works and here's what this means and I, I know they talk about this a lot in writing but I think it's true in films as well I, I, he really trusts the audience to just keep up mm-hmm. he's like I'm not going to make this super complicated but you, I'm also not going to like hold your hand through like well how come Bruce Willis in one timeline escaped and in the other one all of a sudden he's getting shot and killed and, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is going off and living in China and all. That. so like they didn't explain but then in an interview he talks about but it would have been terrible to see in a movie um, he talks about how like it's the first version and the third version were seen in one of the timelines and the second Mm. version is the one where he gets killed and lives it out that allows the other ones to exist i'm sure if you diagram that there's a huge hole there somewhere but i don't care the the narrative momentum carried me along and i don't care about that the details being accurate or not so whatever the people are that obsessed with the nolan movies and they come out about all the implausibilities and inaccurate like you know neil degrasse tyson i don't know if he commented on looper but i hope he didn't because i don't care
1: (laughs) if this is just the vehicle, what is it the vehicle for? Like, what are the through lines of the film?
0: So I just thought it, there was a lot in there about the importance of, of good parenting. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, with my background in psychology and as a therapist, I'm going to see a lot of things through some of that lens as one of my mm-hmm. main lenses that show up whether I want them to or not. Mm-hmm. Though the, the backstory and Joe's it's fairly vague, but you, the story that he tells about his his mom is heartbreaking, though it's just a few seconds long. That she like abandons him to like some train, and he goes off, you know. So he basically he did not get any of this stuff, and he ends up this kind of hardened, weary, you know. I mean, God, who's going to sign up voluntarily to be a looper? Mm-hmm. And what does that person's life been like to get them to that point? And he does that, and and I just think that he had not really had love of any kind was the implication that I got whether or not that's accurate and I think that that he was suggesting or positing that like yeah that there's a certain kind of world where if you don't have attachments or affection or support all that kind of good parental stuff you 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 grow up to be kind of this type of a of a person obviously it's not always that simple or obvious and then you know obviously the second half of the movie switches kind of tonally quite a lot Mm -hmm. and becomes very directly a story about like what's going to happen with this kid. Mm-hmm. I could see how it could be cheesy, but I just, it didn't feel cheesy. Somehow he avoided the cheesiness, at least in my opinion, around, well, yeah, uh, you know, the, the love of a mother has a chance of saving somebody from becoming a creepy Hitler dude.
1: <laughs> so the second half of the movie, we've moved from the city to the country. Mm-hmm. We're fully in like a, a cane field. It looks, it looks like Wizard of Oz, speaking of that again. And we are at Emily Blunt's like <laughs> farm her personal farm (laughs) where she lives alone with her son the reason we're here is because old joe has come into some intel about a numeric code that has some relationship to whoever is the child that will grow up to be the rainmaker and he thinks that if he can execute this figure mm-hmm. while there's still a child, he can prevent everything that happens later, including him being severed forever from his wife and her and her dying at the hands of the Gatman, right? Yeah. So we're on the farm with Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt's arms I hope they're really insured, because between this and Edge of Tomorrow, Emily Blunt is always in time travel movies where her triceps are popping out. Oh, I didn't that. Okay. And in this one, she's cutting down a tree. <laughs> we see it a few times. <laughs> there is some
0: chopping, yeah.
1: There's some chopping. I don't know if there's like a chopping coordinator on set, because mm-hmm. it doesn't look super convincing to me. Not that I would know what it's meant to look like, but... <laughs>
0: As a chopping expert, the technique was a little off.
1: Yeah, but <laughs> she does I have had this idea. kind of like badass quality that I think translates really well to these science fiction or genre films.
0: You have, I think, brought up Edge of Tomorrow almost every podcast, by the way.
1: That's what I do. You say it's a movie, and I say <laughs> it's Edge of Tomorrow.
0: Would you consider that a time travel? No, not really. Time travel adjacent?
1: Yeah, 100% it's a time travel movie.
0: Okay. I, don't know. I haven't yeah. seen it in a while. I just know that everything repeats a lot. Is that time travel?
1: I think so. Yeah. Sure. Cool. yeah it doesn't have to be like unidirectional it'd be <laughs> recurrent i think no Groundhog day i would say is a time travel movie yeah good point right yeah
0: and i do like in the, that article that you uh you said you assigned with looper when you taught it
1: mm-hmm.
0: where that guy talks about which i never really thought about like everyone talks about the paradoxes of time travel and he's mm-hmm. he like takes a break from his main point say, by the way there's no paradox in future time travel it's like oh yeah future time travel is okay there's no paradoxes there yeah
1: that's aging <laughs> <laughs> it's just fast it's just
0: growing. Yes. <laughs>
1: Totally. Yeah, so that thing that I sent you is um, a 2012 interview between Jack Hitt and this physics professor, Ronald L. Mallet that I'm completely obsessed with. Yeah, it was so good. Um, and he only makes a brief mention of Looper, because uh, he's asked about films. But I used to assign it with this film because he wrote this book, brashly titled Time Traveler, colon, A Scientist's Personal Mission to Make Time Travel a Reality. And in the interview... Mm -hmm. he confesses that he got into his research field and it is a confession because he talks about this having been a secret for all his life because he knew that people would think he was crazy if he really came out publicly with this information but he got into this research field because he lost his father when he was only 10 and his dad was 33 and in his grief he read hg wells the time machine so in the interview he says quote when i read it i said this is it this is the solution to my dilemma If I can go back into the past, I can see him again and maybe save his life. Yeah. Which I just find, I mean, I mean, yeah. It's definitely in the middle of the Venn diagram for me between like my obsession with melodrama Mm -hmm. and then this kind of like coincident interest in certain kinds of science fiction and speculative time. Mm -hmm. And in the middle is like a real understanding that too late is real. There are pathways that are severed and you can't follow them anymore and then behind you and
0: but the thing that comes through in that interview is that he takes these asides where he's like which by the way there will be time travel someday yeah like he's very definitive about like this is happening through sheer force of will on my part this is gonna happen i'm gonna find out how to figure out how to bend time and the guy's like Probably 40 at that point. I mean, somewhere in there. You can just see the 10-year-old operating in this, like, hmm. super intelligent physicist who's researching time travel as a secret for many years and under the cover of studying black holes and wormholes and all those other stuff so that he can pass as normal. Yeah. But really, he's just trying to figure out how to invent, you know, invent or create or whatever time travel so that he can go back and see his dad. And the guy says, what would you tell him? He's like, I tell him that I'd love him and I tell him not to smoke. Yeah. And you're just like, your heart breaks. Absolutely. And he's like, what does this cost you? And he's like, a couple of marriages, he kind of casually says.
1: Oh, my God. Is that not the most <laughs> <just> devastating <laughs> part of the It's cost me interview. a couple of marriages. A yeah. couple of marriages. A couple, Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And he said, "Try to be a good husband until until things fell apart." But he does not demonize the obsession. He's like, yeah. "But I'm still really glad I have this obsession." And to think about the power of an obsession that lasts for yeah. thirty plus years, um, based off your ten year old. I mean, if I followed through on some of my obsessions when I, from when I was ten, I, my life would be real bonkers, right?
1: Now. Yeah, I mean, it's not about the film, but that idea of like being sustained mm-hmm. and totally focused on your obsessions and then like having an idea that you could encounter like your father or someone who's a lost figure to you and tell them something that would totally alter their future and therefore your past is totally aligned with what's going on in Looper.
0: Yeah. I feel like there's no dads in Looper at all. Hmm. Lots of mom stuff. But I don't know if there's any dads anywhere. I think that, yeah, the the mother's love. If you look at that as this guy's relationship to his dad in this article, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Is Like there just seems to be a lot of circling around of regret. I mean, that's what Mm -hmm. I love probably about time travel is the idea, one, that we all have all these regrets. But then Mm -hmm. secondarily, that we all wish at like the core of ourselves that there was some way to go back and undo things, Mm -hmm. whatever those things may be, small things, big things it's such a big part of the human condition. And I think that it's hard to imagine a person that it doesn't resonate with in some way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's where, to get back to my idea of time travel as the vehicle, like it's it's something that says, okay, well, let's have time travel then and you can go back. Let's see what you would do or how you would do it. Whether it's the back to the future version or the Terminator version or anywhere in between. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it just opens up a lot of possibilities that I think just get at a lot of the, the core kind of vulnerabilities mm-hmm. and wounds that a lot of us have mm-hmm. just from growing up, even if we weren't traumatized, just, just growing up.
1: Absolutely. I think you're right that there are not strictly dads as such in Looper. Yeah. But I would argue that there are at least two dads, <laughs> like effective dads. My two dads, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my two dads, my two dads, Jeff Daniels and Bruce Willis. <laughs> oh, I forgot.
0: Yeah, I forgot. I keep forgetting <laughs> Jeff Daniels is like the villain. Yeah,
1: It has this really paternal... Yeah, he's got a weird vibe. I like it. Characterization in the film, right? Like I yeah. put a gun in your hand, I gave you something that's yours, this dialogue that we hear repeatedly and there is a kind of sense of like the student outdoing the master kind of
0: a surrogate father yeah Mm -hmm. the
1: the son outdoing the father yeah but then the diner scene where we get a kind of confrontation between young joe and old joe face to face for an extended conversation for the first time Mm -hmm. that i can't watch any other way than seeing it as effectively the varsity blues moment i don't want your life (laughs) i'm not going to do the accent but you can imagine it (laughs) of just being like everything you think you have to tell me has nothing to do with me and then all the hubris of that yeah but then also there's a lot of presumption and arrogance in telling someone that you know exactly how things will turn out for them and of course it's complicated by the fact that because it's a science fiction film, they are literally the same person.
0: But man, it had the same vibes as me and my dad at fifteen. Yeah, like I didn't know. Like, oh, <laughs> No, I mean, just like, you can't tell me my life.
1: Yeah. Know. I
0: thought he was ridiculous, and he thought I was ridiculous. You know, that it had that energy to it. I don't know. Yeah, it's a fascinating scene, and I know we haven't talked about the nose at all. I, I am not a fan of the nose. I, yeah,
1: let's talk about it now. Okay. What do you think about that family resemblance?
0: I just, I don't understand why they did it, and it distracted me the entire no. movie both times mm-hmm. I watched it. <laughs> just my opinion. If you're going to cast... Joseph Gordon-Levitt in a movie, he can just be allowed to look like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And I don't mm. I don't need him to have a fake nose to remind me that he's Bruce Willis mm. uh, in the future. Like, I can keep that information in suspension of disbelief. I don't need to make... I guess there weren't any other characters that appeared in the same way, was there? They never showed old Seth or anything, did they? Did they show old Seth?
1: They do, yeah. And he looks nothing like... Paul Dano.
0: Okay, yeah, so that would just prove my point further. Like, It feels like one of those things, Like, that would be one of my very small criticisms with the movie. Um, why did you need to do that? It's a little distracting. It's a, it's a very minor complaint, but it was very distracting for me. I mentioned to both you guys, I didn't get any traction with it, but I will throw it out to the podcast universe. Say, like, all I could think of is how much he looked like Joe Rogan the whole time, and that oh, just wow. really, really just put me in a bad space. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had, to t- I had to take, like, Ivermectin on the spot.
1: Yeah. <laughs> The prosthetic designer is prosthetic artist and makeup artist, Kazuhiro. So uh, he's done a lot of things, including the model of Brad Pitt's head that could be aged via (laughs) um, CGI for Benjamin Button in 2008. Praise be. And then he retired after Looper. (laughs) You know, he went out on top. And he now makes giant sculptures of famous people's heads, like big
0: busts. As one does. Mm,
1: Yeah. And then he came out of retirement to do Darkest Hour and then won the Oscar for that. And then again in 2020 for Bombshell.
0: Random, random, random choices for this guy.
1: I know, I know. But maybe for me, most excitingly, he's the principal artist on The Devil's Advocate, which is a movie, I think fucking rules <laughs> <So. laughs> you
0: have brought that up a few times yeah i think we got to do a plot on that at some point
1: yeah our pacino issue maybe yeah. that's keanu
0: too right keanu reeves oh yes yeah oh, oh yeah. yes okay.
1: and charlie's yes all, right. all yeah. the masters
0: maybe he only does charlie's movies because she was in bombshell right
1: yeah that's right <laughs> yeah so this month we were trying to sort of float like a soft open of an idea that we've batted around a little bit, (laughs) which is um, having listeners call in. I'm doing air quotes and give us a little soundbite of what they think or some analysis that's related to the film that's on offer this month. And we got a couple and that's fine. That's great. Our numbers will grow. We're building.
0: Double what we had last month.
1: Perfect. So we're going to hear from a couple people and loop it up. (laughs) First, we're going to hear from Justin from New York.
0: Hey, this is Justin Hairston in New York. Big fan of Looper for a lot of deeper reasons, too. But superficially, I just think Johnson is so good at coming up with these never-seen-this-before action sci-fi ideas. Like someone self-scarring to communicate with their future selves, shooting down into the dirt to kick up dust and block someone's view. And especially just the visual of people popping into an empty field and immediately getting gunned down by a looper. Just really creative, memorable stuff. And that was Justin on Looper. Thank you, Justin, for calling in. Justin, incidentally, was uh, or has been a past contributor to Bright Wall Dark Room. You can find his essay on Station Eleven from about maybe five or six months ago in the extras section on the site. Uh, A really really nice essay on a really great limited TV series. But yeah, what would you think, Veronica, of what Justin had to say?
1: Yeah, I really love this observation that I feel like is kind of close to what we were saying before about Johnson's talent for giving a sort of original interpretation of familiar genre conventions, right? Mm. And particularly, he brings up something that we haven't really talked about, which is the sort of like promiscuous treatment of what counts as technology in this film. Mm. Whenever we're talking about science fiction, I think it's really interesting to inventory. What is the stuff in the movie that evokes the future? What are the hallmarks that tell us that we're in a different time? And often technology or technological advances is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. And in this movie, as he says, body modification or scarification is a huge technology for communicating because of this kind of shared body problem that we get in the film. It's interesting because like a lot of things in the film, it feels like it's from almost an older or more analog or nostalgic kind of tradition in the same way that film's treatment of space once we get out of Kansas City City (laughs) is sort of more rural and almost like Western looking or something. Similarly, like carving messages into the skin yeah. doing research in the library like <laughs> these are things that are really sort of not advanced in a way
0: no that farm does not feel like it's 2044 or whatever year it's supposed to be it's, yeah yeah it feels like the 80s or something
1: yeah so that's a cool kind of additional layer of time travel that i think we're getting in the film right where there are these nostalgic or classic references as well
0: yeah and i threw that that quote in um where ryan johnson said like the second half of the movie was super influenced by shane you know obviously classic Mm -hmm. western and witness which as soon as he said witness i was like oh my god yes the farm for witness i was like that makes total sense but yeah it's very different than any kind of sci-fi time travel vibes but brings the 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 sci-fi time travel vibes to the farm So, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. The, the Gatmen were not in Witness, if I remember Witness.
1: <laughs> no, it's a deleted scene. You know, there are some really memorable images from this movie. like if mm-hmm. we're, oh, absolutely. We haven't talked at all about the fact that Emily Blunt is um, the mother to Sid, who is the Rainmaker, the future Rainmaker.
0: Yeah, we haven't talked about a lot of that.
1: And he's played by, who is this kid?
0: The creepiest kid ever.
1: Pierce. Gagnon I assume it's I, yeah I don't know how to say it but in yeah the French, I, don't know. I
0: looked him up and he's I was like oh he's gonna be so old now but he's only 17 so he's
1: he's still young yeah he's actually not that old yeah and still acting but he has so many great scenes like the main kind of action scenes in the film it feels like that are yeah. memorable anyway um I wouldn't count Bruce Willis shooting his way through the kind of nightclub <laughs> corridors as that memorable or visually interesting but the way we see the telekinesis weaponized by that kid.
0: Yeah, telekinesis. I mean, just in general, freaks me out. So to, to have a creepy kid doing it, just that was almost too much for me.
1: So awesome.
0: Nah, so like uh, omni. It was like ah, I can't handle little kids being creepy. Has got to be my biggest trigger. I was just like, oh, I can't handle creepy though.
1: But he's cute too. But that's what
0: makes him so creepy. Yeah. He's
1: creepy cute.
0: He was creepy cute. Oh, I relate. You like him? Yeah. He just needed a mother's love.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should we listen to
0: our second one? Let's go for it. And we also got a submission from Marcus from Seattle, which we love. So let's take a listen to to what Marcus had to say about Looper. Cue it up, Eli.
1: My name is Marcus. I'm from Seattle. Looper introduced me to Ryan Johnson. who's a staple of 2012 JGL Tumblr for me. I love that the film blends old school formalism with rainy energy as well as the five obstructions. There's also a sense of melancholy to the film. Everyone on screen dreamt of something better for themselves but had to give it up. The scenes of Piper Parabo and Blunt's monologue post hookup come to mind. In so many ways, I think Looper is one of my favorite films about parenting and what's required to break unhealthy cycles. Marcus from Seattle really maximizing those 30 seconds. I dig it. That's awesome. Even I don't care that we have two. These are both really good, like really yep. substantial. I love that you brought up Piper Perabo who we haven't talked about, Star of Coyote Ugly and here a showgirl that young Joe has, a, I guess, a kind of like relationship with. Um, and we see recur again. Yeah, whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs>
0: An approximation of a relationship, which I think is kind of his thing.
1: Marcus brings up parenting. And I know we've been talking about it a little bit, but something I want to sort of ask about in relation to this movie and to Marcus's comment is the relationship in looper between moms and wives or moms and lovers. Mm. Because there are all these... Resonances between them, echoes, yeah, right, that the film offers pretty insistently, like in a way that it seems like we have no choice but to reckon with. So, I'm thinking about the way that we see Joe's wife touch old Joe's foot Mm -hmm. when we're seeing them together in the country in their kind of domestic bliss on her way out of the bedroom, which struck me when I first saw the film as a really sweet gesture and something very specific very like Ryan Johnson to home in on this particular kind of idiosyncratic gesture but then we see it echoed in the way that Sarah touches her son Sid's socked foot when we first see him in the film when he's sort of seen for mm-hmm. the first time Sarah herself is kind of alluded to by the story as being uh like a grown version of the Piper parable character Susie similar names as well yeah. and obviously Joe tells this anecdote about maybe remembering his mom touching his hair. We see Susie touch his hair at the end of that scene in a kind of conciliatory, reassuring, not necessarily maternal way, Mm -hmm. but because of the way we've heard this anecdote play out, of course it's going to have that resonance too. And then we see Sarah touch Joe's hair at the end of the film, which combined with a couple things that I'm sure we'll talk about sort of maybe more at the end of our discussion, but just makes me have questions about what we're meant to do with all these layered kind of echoes of love interests and moms.
0: I feel like he's just suggesting and then allowing viewers to make whatever connections they've got. I mean, I, I read a few interviews and it was all variations on a theme of him basically saying like, yeah, that's a cool question. <laughs> like any, anytime you hit that point, right. he, he did not give any answers, you know, which I always admire people that have more straight than I would ever have as a filmmaker. Mm. He, he's never going to say exactly what's happening. Like that final shot. I, I watched that a couple of times. Cause like, did I miss some, why is it ending on the kid in bed? Like, mm-hmm. what am I meant to take from this? I still don't know what I'm meant to take from that. Mm-hmm. It, can be a little bit sinister, like maybe this doesn't still work out, but also it can be sweet. Right. And also is he okay? And also it's this kind of resolution moment, but I don't feel resolution mm-hmm. because of that shot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas if that shot wasn't in there or if the kid was like asleep peacefully and smiling or something, I'd be like, oh he's happy. There's no more Rainmaker. I don't know. You know, I mean obviously I guess you'd have to talk to Ryan Johnson and get him to open up honestly. To know what he meant. But I don't know what he meant by any of it. I just I do like a suggestion and then make what you want of it. That's more fun narratively for me because I don't think there's a definitive answer. I don't think there's meant to be. That's my take. I don't know. What do you think?
1: Well, I definitely don't really care what Ryan Johnson meant to be doing beyond the sort of curiosity of various influences, which Johnson has been really forthcoming about, which is a cool kind of contextual bit of information. But for the most part, I don't really care what the filmmaker is aiming for. But I am really interested in asking what the effects are of how the film text itself plays out in time, right? And in the ending of this film, we get a dissolve from a long shot of Sarah in the field with dead young Joe that through superimposition becomes the shot of Sid sleeping in the bed. Oh yeah. And we've already seen her put him down to sleep. So we're returning to this previous. Place, which is the bedroom, we don't need to go there again for information. Like we already know that he's safe and sleeping in the bed. So why do we go back there? Why is it a dissolve that brings us back there? Mm -hmm. Which is classically, you know, not just associated with flashbacks, but usually with more time going by than something that would be conveyed by the cut. Time, yeah. Right? Which is more instant, typically. From that image, we have a fade to white, which feels. Also, baffling, like why that is something that's usually associated with. And
0: then he dies.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like a a beginning or has some kind of rebirth connotation. Oh, yeah,
0: I went to afterlife ish stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rebirth works too. Spiritual in some way.
1: Yeah, so that's my biggest question about the film, really, is like it feels so loaded Mm. with weird transitions and suggestions at the end to the point where if I didn't know better I would be like is there some suggestion here that Joe is being reincarnated into this kid and I don't think that's literally what's happening of course but stylistically (laughs) I definitely would argue that that's sort of the suggestion of the film and also goes back to him saying he has this memory of his mom touching his hair which he can't have, like he's already dead when she's doing that. But then why would we hear him talk about it? And then why do we see her do it again?
0: I mean, it's definitely a huge motif uh, in the movie, but Mm -hmm. I think something I was saying earlier that might connect or might not, but that idea of, yeah, of of Joe is basically one version of what happens when you grow up, when your mom abandons you on a train. Mm. (laughs) And then Sid as this example of what happens when you have this, you know, mother's love in your life. Well, I don't know if I took it this way, but I could I could make a case for it this way where it's saying like that this this timeline is wrapped up different. Like it was basically saying mm-hmm. now he gets a, a chance at whatever his life was going to be, you know, without all these crazy loopers and time travel and all that kind of stuff going on mm-hmm. that he's maybe going to have just a peaceful life. I, I don't even know if that's what it means because it, again, it it doesn't quite connect. Well, but.
1: no, I think that's compelling because redemption is a key theme of the film, right? Yeah.
0: So you could see him as which we didn't mention, killing himself. (laughs) Young Joe killing himself in order to redeem or save or martyr himself for this boy to have a chance at the the life he never got to have. We solved it.
1: Yeah, we solved it. Yeah, because we do, I mean, you know, Sarah talks about her redemption from her kind of like party girl days to coming back to the role of a mother at the point at which she was ready to have it, but still having a lot of guilt for procrastinating taking on that responsibility yeah, absolutely, and you know joe's origin story of being redeemed from poverty by getting employed as an assassin but ultimately he needs to be <laughs> saved you know in the future from his addiction there's a lot of kind of bringing people back from the brink maybe maybe there is something kind of aesthetic about the ending that's also bringing even the film back from a kind of brink of ending towards something a little bit more with a little more futurity yeah
0: Old Joe Bruce Willis tried to and failed to save the love of his life, mm-hmm. who died. Was not able to save her. Feels like intertextuality between that and then the fact that young Joe saves the the rainmaker's life, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know that he wasn't able to do it in the future with old Joe, but young Joe was able to make this uh, decision to say, "Okay." Which again, I, I I do think narratively too. That's one thing I would talk about. Like that felt like a brilliant decision because the main question I have in most time travel movies is usually the. The last 15 or 20 minutes when they're trying to make it all work out and they run into all these huge holes of like, yeah, but this, all these timelines are jumbled up. I don't know how to make it work. Like just to have this split second decision, which I did not see coming the first time. And I had forgotten about the second time Mm -hmm. um, when he just makes that split, you know, and it ties up all the loops. It takes every problematic, like, well, how would this work? And how it just, it's all gone. Because he just takes himself out, <laughs> and I just like I did not see that coming. I thought it was I thought it was really brilliant narratively. Though I don't think I've seen a time travel movie resolve like that, uh, in kind of a, <laughs> a martyrdom. Yeah, big fan, big fan of that.
1: <laughs> Good that it takes him to the end of the movie to sort of work up the guts to do it. Otherwise, more of a featurette than a feature. You know. It,
0: but it felt like it was in, in the moment. I mean, there was no like foreshadowing of like him thinking, oh, this is an option that I have. Or, you know, like touching the gun or like pl- putting it up to his chin like 20 minutes earlier just to see what it's like. You know, it was just like it really caught me off guard. And then also made immediate sense of like, oh, of course, that's how you can end this and just close all this stuff.
1: There isn't foreshadowing in that sense. But if we think about when he first has a conversation with Sarah about what's going on and she's like who is this guy and he's like someone i know like he doesn't want to tell her that that's (laughs) his loop because surely he understands that if she knows that she'll just kill him
0: oh sarah will come yeah
1: yeah that's the easy sort of solution to the whole problem so i don't know it feels like it takes him a long time to work up the conviction to take that path or to deviate or change things as he puts it even though i think he understands that that's a path one could take the whole time.
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, I mean, if you play out that idea of the bad path that keeps coming up throughout the movie, um, mm. he takes himself off the bad path. I mean, he just he just ends it right there. <laughs> Game over. And so he doesn't play out this life, you know. When I, when I read that thing about there being like a, the original cut being two hours and 40 minutes and then him just kind of Cutting all that out, I was like, yeah. It feels like someone chipped away at a big piece of stone until they got it exactly where they wanted it as a statue or marble or whatever. And that the rest, we're never going to know what what the rest of it was. And that we're just kind of left to see kind of the empty spaces and try to fill in with our own projections or guesses or whatever. But that's, you know, for me, one of the big joys of watching movies is is doing that. I don't like to be spoon-fed. It's not not my thing, so. So
1: are you saying this is
0: a sculpture?
1: More than a movie, it's a sculpture. Wow. It's a chiseled... Stone. You saw the bad path and you changed it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm not, lo- I mean, again, uh, I'm, I'm legally not allowed to tell this situation resolves. I'm not allowed to comment anymore with my, my famous line about whether or not it's a movie. So you'll have to wait to, to get my judgment on that. But it did resemble something that I would say was a movie. I should say I really liked it, in case I didn't come through. I thought it was fantastic.
1: Yeah, I really so th- liked it, Thank too. you for
0: suggesting it. Oh, that's yeah. no problem. Yeah, and I think I'll, I do think a lot of people have forgotten about this movie. I don't, I don't think it was just the Star Wars stuff that buried it. I mean, I feel like Brothers yeah. Bloom was also very forgotten. Like, he was doing really interesting filmmaking.
1: I think 2012 is, like, a lost time now.
0: Yeah, but why? Just because of Obama?
1: Just because of Obama.
0: Because we weren't worried about
1: anything? <laughs> that's a really funny thing. Oh. No, I don't know. I don't know. I just it's a good movie here. The mid-aughts still feel or I guess the 2010s like still feel really recent to me, even though now this is fully 10 years ago. But Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Last call. No. <laughs> yeah, let's do last call. Let's do last call. So, we're just going to last call each other this time. Um <laughs> Typically, we end every episode by asking our guests to share the last thing they watched recently and then a quick staff reco. I will do the first half. Sure. So the last thing I watched recently, this isn't exactly the last thing I watched because I just finished the current season of MasterChef. But uh-huh. I have been really diving into the James Wong Howe series on Criterion. Mm. And specifically, the one that I have been the most struck by is a film called This Property is Condemned. Yeah. I, ha- I realized in watching it, I had seen maybe like the first 20 minutes or something at some point. Maybe I'd seen it on TCM or something. But Natalie Wood is like so extraordinary in this movie. Her drunk performance is like really up there with the most recent compelling drunk performance I had seen prior to this was Evan Peters. In Mayor of Easttown. Oh, yeah. He was so great in like one scene. I forgot about that show entirely. What a good show. Yeah, I mean, uh. I don't think about it much, but I thought no. he was so good in that scene. And Natalie Wood has this great extended scene that's on, much of it is on YouTube anyway, where she mm. is drunk, she's spiteful, she's worried. She's aware of her grief, but she's sort of drinking through it. Hmm. She's making a huge, scary drama at the table, involving everyone at the table. She's basically pressuring her mother's sometimes boyfriend to confess that he would rather be with her. And that if he does feel that way, they should just get married. Hmm. And her mom is like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) And she's been trying to marry her off the entire film to some other guy who could potentially like put them up and solve a lot of their financial woes. And Natalie Wood is, of Mm. course, in love with someone else entirely. There's this like whole kind of precarity drama that's really alcohol fueled. And there's a lot of like, assuming the worst of people and just watching her kind of gleefully wreak havoc Mm. is absolutely incredible. And the Cinematography from James Wong Howe is as always. I was gonna
0: say, yeah, that's that's the part. Yeah, I, mean, I, haven't, I haven't seen that movie, but his cinematography—it's
1: so lyrical and timeless. Yeah, Sweet Smell of Success is like stuck with me from,
0: since film school. Like, yeah, v- rarely a week goes by when I don't want to just watch a clip from that movie just to look at it. It's it's so beautiful. Yeah, great film too. But yeah, i was so happy to see that show up on the on the Criterion channel recently. The whole mm-hmm. series of his stuff, yeah, and I didn't realize like I didn't realize he'd done. I don't want to get it wrong, but he did like funny. He did some Barbara Streisand movie.
1: Yeah, Funny Girl. Yeah, I had
0: no idea he lensed that one.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's your staff reco this month, Chad?
0: I'm not known for my timeliness, so um, I just watched. Severance, uh, finally the TV show, which I just heard about nonstop forever. My best friend is like, You have to see this. And I was like, Absolutely. And that always, but with anybody telling me I have to see something, I was like, Okay, now I'm definitely waiting at least another week. So I had to wait till everyone stopped recommending it to me and then I could finally watch it. I know
1: that feeling. And uh,
0: it was fantastic. And every time, even though I, you know, eight episodes, nine episodes, every time Ben Stiller's name came up, with me, I was like, Oh, yeah. He, he, Man, good job, Ben. What an artist you are. Uh, which I had always forgotten because he was quite an artist, I think could make a pretty good case 20 or 30 years ago with the Ben Stiller show, I thought was really groundbreaking. People, unfortunately, think of reality, but I think Cable Guy's fascinating as a movie, like just like in terms of what it is and what's going on there. Um, and he directed that. So he has this kind of side career and then he mm-hmm. kind of, I think, accidentally ended up being the Meet the Fockers guy and or Meet the Parents guy or whatever and then was in these comedies, which he does okay in, you know, he's kind of the nebbishy guy or whatever. But I do think that uh, this was Ben Stiller as the artist returning and I like that. And I thought the show was fantastic for all the reasons everyone will tell you it is. Um, but it just it just did everything. Uh, I, I think of it as a movie. I mean, I know it's a show, but it, 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 it's one of those ones. I, I It just felt like a long movie that was really great the whole time. And I could not predict it at all. And then the finale, like, that's how cliffhangers used to be. I don't know. if you, have you seen it? I
1: haven't. No, no. Okay.
0: Yeah, I was just like, oh, my God. This is what I remember, like, every May or June, you'd watch, like, five of your favorite shows all end in this way. And you just, like die because you know you couldn't watch till september (laughs) and now in the streaming world you're like i don't know when this show's coming out like five years like two Mm. they can make it could come out tomorrow i don't know Mm. so you're just kind of indefinitely waiting on this really major like switch in the whole series so yes in in case you're you're even later to the party than me severance is very highly recommended and then just in general as mentioned i've just been watching a ton of old classic films that I hadn't seen since like the, my, my film school days like 20 years ago and uh, re-watching them now uh, in, in midlife is, is a fascinating experience and all but one have which I won't name have held up really really well
1: Just name it Which one is it? I mean
0: it's not that it wasn't Good, it just was not. Um, Put it, on blast. it wasn't as yeah. film school, like you know, when you're like, you know, I was a dude in film school, so everything was amazing, and I was seeing all this stuff for the first time. And then, you know, 20 some years later, I'm not gonna say it, I don't want to say
1: it. Chad, give us the name, come on, it was weird. Come on, <laughs> you have to reward the listener that makes it <laughs> all the way to the end of the episode.
0: Um, so it, yeah, I just feel like it, 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 there's nothing but grief I'm gonna get for this. i mean, to get no reaction or grief, but it rhymes with Schminatown. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I will say that one that far exceeded my memories of it that I didn't like much as a 20-something and love now was Treasure of the Sierra Madre which I just thought was like fucking amazing I'm like oh my god I want to watch that every night now right. it only did because I heard it was Paul Thomas Anderson's favorite movie and so I was like okay there's got to be something I missed the first time around so fantastic movie so that's like a 20 recommendations for me there
1: okay well we gotta stop so I can open a tab and pull up homophones for Schminatown Town. <laughs>
0: I'm not going to say what the movie was. Lots
1: of stuff rhymes with Shemina Town. This was great, Chad. Thanks for breaking it all down with me. Mm-hmm. And thanks to our callers in, Justin and Marcus. Thank you. It's great to hear from you. And to read this month's issue on time travel, you're going to have to visit us at brightwelldarkroom.com. You can also find us on Twitter at BWDR. I would love to get the podcast Twitter up and followers. It is kind of hilarious that we have like under 200 on the on <laughs> the. BWDR podcast, <laughs> and then we have like thirty eight thousand or something on the regular, yeah, on main, as they say. I
0: have to kind of retweet it from the, the yeah. main one to get it to get its attention.
1: I know. So give us a follow on at the Bright wall Darker or the BWDR podcast. Yeah, you know, can't hurt.
0: And the idea would be that we'll we'll post more stuff from the movie, like time permitting, which is always the case at, at Brightwall Darker. <laughs> That we would fill up, you know, the month with with like this month, like a lot of fascinating stuff about Looper. If we get more followers, we will do that for sure. And uh, I think we could have a lot of fun over there. So we'll see. As always, please just subscribe, share, rate it, review it. That's the only way that this thing can grow. And so please do your part if you like listening. We do put a lot of love and time into this and, uh, and we'd like to know what you guys think. So you can do that and you can also support the show directly by subscribing either to the magazine, in which case you get a subscription to the site and be able to read anything, which is over a thousand essays on on all kinds of movies for the last 10 years or you can support us directly at patreon.com slash and
1: if you subscribe you can be the first to hear fran and i dissect selections from this year's new york film festival yes
0: we've got an exciting month coming up
1: yeah where we will both be swilling martinis between press screenings <laughs>
0: That'll be awesome to hear you guys talk about. Uh, there's some good stuff playing this year at the festival, right?
1: Tons. I can't wait. Cool. Yeah.
0: Well, I look forward to that as a as a
1: listener too. Our theme music is composed by Chad Perman. This podcast is produced and edited by Eli Sands. By. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You're like, can you cut all of that?